Welcome to episode number 151 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast for building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney, and I want to say a big welcome to the fourth year of recording the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Yes, we're up to 151 plus episodes. There are about 50 weeks in a year, so we're just coming into our fourth year of recording this podcast. I want to say a big thank you for all the listeners, everyone who tunes in. We have over 25,000 downloads to date. We're getting anywhere between 800 and 1,100 downloads a month now, which is you know a couple of hundred people listening to the podcast every week. So I want to say a big thank you for listening. I also want to say a big thank you for everything you do in combustible dust safety around the world. It really moves the mission for what we're trying to achieve, which is seeing a year with zero fatalities by 2038 and putting the processes and policies and platforms in place to make that happen. And you, all that are listening to this podcast, are the boots on the ground, the pointing of the spear. They're making that happen every day with the work you're doing. So I really appreciate that. To kick off this fourth year of the Dust Safety Science Podcast, I'm going to do a couple of solo episodes talking about combustible dust loss history. There's a really famous quote that I've heard. I think it's from a, a German individual. And it's, if we could just remember what we forgot, we would improve safety insurmountably something along those lines. So we're forgetting quicker than we're actually learning in a lot of cases. That's what continues to see the same loss history happen, the same loss history happen time and time again. That's why I want to go all the way back and sort of bring some of this material back into the forefront for combustible dust safety. So there's really two sort of myths that I'm going to tackle in the next couple of podcast episodes. One is that combustible dust safety is not a new problem. No, combustible dust didn't become an issue when the Imperial Sugar Refinery explosion happened in 2008, that wasn't the starting point. And we're actually going to go back about 100 years in this episode to identify that. It's also not only a North America problem. There's global challenges with combustible dust safety. So in this episode, we're going to tackle this first myth or this first challenge that it's not a new problem. We're going to talk about some of the information that's been available for the last 100 years within the United States and within North America, tackling combustible dust and a lot of the lost history that's there as well. And then subsequent episodes, I believe next week, we're going to talk about GDP and can this be something that is used to estimate how many dust explosions, injuries, and fatalities you're going to have in a year. Um, and those are actually from a research paper that we'll be going through in that episode. Then we're going to talk about different countries specifically. We have academic research out of Europe, out of Asia, out of China and Japan, out of Germany, and out of elsewhere in the world that we'll be talking through in these next couple episodes to illustrate what kind of challenges are happening around the world, what kind of incidents are people seeing, what kind of losses are they seeing and how big is this problem? So in today's episode, I'm going to give some of the oldest references I can find in North America. There are some available in other parts of the world, but in North America for combustible dust, I'm actually going to read some quotes from them and we'll see how eerily similar they are to the same sort of textbooks and guidebooks and industry guidance that are available today. And also talk through some of the lost history that has been compiled through groups like NFPA, the National Fire Prevention Association, the CSB, the Chemical Safety Board, and other groups um, within North America that have been tracking this sort of information, and also comparing it back to the data that we're finding at Dust Safety Science and our incident database that we've been running since 2016. So with that kind of background, let's let's jump right in. So when did dust explosion become an issue? Well, that's probably a good question. I've seen reports as far back as the 1700s talking about flower dust explosions and certainly coal dust explosions. But in North America, one of the most comprehensive references that I can find that involves combustible dust in an early period is from 1915. This is the textbook Dust Explosions, Theory and Nature of Phenomena, Causes, and Methods of Prevention. That's by David J. Price. 
who is the engineer in charge of dust explosion investigations for the Bureau of Chemistry at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He was also a member of NFPA. And his co-author, Harold, Dr. Harold H. Brown, also from the Bureau of Chemistry of the U.S. Department of Agriculture and a member of NFPA. In this book itself, Dust Explosions, Theory and Nature of, Phenomena, Causes, and Methods of Prevention, was published by the National Fire Protection Association, um, or NFPA back at the time. So there's a number of really interesting things about this textbook. One, it's quite long, 260 pages, all around combustible dust back in 1915. But if you read the preface, and I'm going to do that here for you, um, you'll get a real feeling for how dust explosions were seen at the time, which isn't really that much different than we see today. Um, So I'm going to read the preface. So the subject of dust explosions has not received serious consideration until recent years. In fact, no one seemed to have any conception that dust alone could explode. But the fact that a large number of explosions have been occurring in mines and industrial plants where no explosive gases were present has proved the idea to be false and has led to the study of this particular hazard. The loss of life and property, which many of these explosions have entailed, has increased the demand for comprehensive and authoritative publication on the subject. Attempting to meet this demand, the authors desire to give them facts as they have been found by investigation and in such a way they may be easily understood and applied. So I'm going to jump in here and just kind of note how this prefix, this preface rather, would fit in, you know, the U.S. Chemical Safety Board reports, the dust hazard study that they completed in 2008, 2009, 2010 timeframe, and a lot of the other dust explosions, textbooks that are available. The subject of dust explosions has not received serious consideration until recent years. In fact, no one seems to have any conception that dust alone could explode. That one sentence keeps coming up time and time again in terms of combustible dust, even way back in 1915 when the time this book was written. So I'm going to continue reading the preface because it gives you some of the context in history around that time, which led to this textbook being published, and then some of the other stuff that we'll talk about here in the early 1900s as well. So reading from the preface, the second paragraph states, following a series of disastrous explosions in coal mines in the United States in 1907, the technological branch of the U.S. Geological Survey started an investigation to determine the cause of these disasters and to develop means per, of prevention. An experiment station was established at the, in Pittsburgh, PA. In 1910, this division became a separate bureau, the U.S. Bureau of Not Mines under the Department of the Interior. In connection with its study of mine explosions, this bureau has been interested in explosions in industrial plants since any information on the subject would help in solving the related problems. Consequently, when a disastrous explosion occurred in a feed grinding plant in Buffalo, New York, in June of 1913, the Bureau of Mines made a careful study of it. In the course of this investigation, the grain and milling men of the vicinity took a lively interest in this question, desiring to give it to give and obtain all possible assistance so that similar disasters might be prevented. This led to cooperation between the U.S. Bureau of Mines and the milling and grain interests in, of the country for the purpose of studying the cause of dust explosions in mills and elevators and developing a means of prevention. This investigation was carried on at the Bureau of Mines for one year being financed by the grain trade. In the fall of 1914, provision was made for continuous continuation of this work on a permanent basis by the Bureau of Chemistry of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, where it's being conducted at the present time. So this second paragraph in the preface really tells you how they got to this point in 1915 of looking at dust explosions. There were coal mine explosions that were happening. I've talked about this on the podcast in some research episodes before, where coal mining was really the first indication that dust could explode alone. People couldn't justify a large mine exploding on the basis of just methane gas buildup. Had to be the coal dust that was involved. 
There's some research done by some individuals in that area. And that led to then the U.S. Bureau of Mines being formed, looking at dust explosions. And then there were some incidents that happened back in this paragraph states 19, well, the 1910s, 1913, there were some feed grinding explosions. And this is when general industry started to say, hey, can we partner with U.S. Bureau of Mines and learn from each other? Department of Agriculture got involved, and that's how then Price and Brown got into, from the Bureau of Chemistry of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, got into sort of the general industry side of combustible dust back in the, the early 1910s. So then we're going to carry on with the third paragraph of the preface. And this one talks about the industries that now have been involved since writing this book, which was only about five years since looking back into this, or at least the first 15 years in 1900. And I'll, I'll read verbatim. To give an idea of the scope of the study of dust explosions and the industries subject to such disasters, it may be stated that explosions are known to have occurred in flour mills, feed mills, grain elevators, starch, dextrine, and all grain handling plants. Sugar, candy, chocolate, malt, spice, linseed meal, cotton seed meal, paper, cork, and linoleum, woodworking, and sulfur factories, and in coal mines. In fact, all industrial plants which a dust is produced in the handling of a carbonaceous material or the manufacture of various products from this material are subject to the possibility of an explosion. Some idea of the extent of the industries affected and the amount of property involved may be obtained from the census reports for 1919. These show that more than 21,000 establishments are manufacturing or creating dusts of an explosive nature and that the valuation of product is more than $6.7 billion. And that's, again, at the time this textbook was written. So two points there. One is the industries that were involved. We, we named them all off. Those industries are still involved with combustible dust safety today and more. Basically, they're saying every industry that handles solid material um, that is carbon-based or that is reactive in any way, exothermically, has the potential for generating combustible dust. Second point is that this says the census reports of 1919, which means that I can't possibly have the date right for this textbook of being 1915, but we'll ignore that. Um, the name of the textbook, again, is Theory and Nature of Phenomena, Causes and Methods of Prevention for Dust Explosions by Price and Brown. It does not have a date that I can see. I thought it was 1915, but they couldn't have possibly quoted the 1919 data. So we'll say this is probably maybe in the early 1920s that this book was published, because that's some of the other material that we'll talk about here in a few minutes around the same time that, that was being published by these same authors. And then I'll close out just the last paragraph of this preface. In approaching the subject, it has seemed well to consider what a dust explosion really is and the different factors which affect its nature or behavior what explosions have done, and what has been learned in studying those which have occurred in various industries. And then to discuss the measures which have proved most effective in preventing an explosion or in retarding its development once it's started. It is the sincere desire of the authors in bringing this matter to the attention of the public in this way that many explosions may be prevented and that thereby many lives and much property may be saved. So that's it. That's the idea behind the need for this 260-page textbook back again in the early 1920s early or mid-1910s to, to 1920s, at least when this research was done to guide this textbook development. And again, this was over 100 years ago now. So dust exposures are not a new issue. And I want to take a second piece of this and just talk through some of the table of contents of this 260-page textbook 
because we'll see how eerily similar it is to the table of contents of the same guidebooks that we'll be talking through today. So chapter one covers the nature and theory of dust explosions. It compares dust explosions and gas explosions. That's section one of chapter one. Um, theories on ignition and propagation, comparison of mine and mill and factory explosions, the relative inflammability of dust. So how easy is it to, to ignite um, and be flammable and factors affecting the flammability of dust. So this is sort of your introduction to combustible dust chapter. Gives you an idea of what is combustible dust, why is combustible, how it can ignite and that sort of thing. Chapter two talks about industries producing dust and their existence. Again, there's a whole lot of industries that are mentioned here. It talks about the points at which dust is produced, the handling material, choke-ups, drying equipment, cleaning of material, grinding, separation, storage. Uh, we're not going to do too much detail there. Chapter three is on causes of explosions and eliminations, elimination of sources of interest, of, of ignition rather. And they talk about smoking, electrical causes, small-scale fires, sparks from foreign materials, static electricity, all things that are relevant today. And then under the next couple of chapters, it's around prevention of explosions by control of explosive mixtures, decreasing the percentage of oxygen in air, preventing explosive dust and air mixtures, so keeping things below the minimum dust concentration. They talk about isolation, prevention of explosion propagation. There's a whole chapter on dust collection and removal, why it's needed, um, the hazards that arise from dust collection where large, large quantities of dust are held in suspension during that process. Dust removal, as important to dust collection. The use of compressed air. <laughs> you know, things that we see every day. Inefficiency of the broom push method for cleaning. This whole chapter devoted to static electricity. And then they talk about plant construction, cotton gin fires, coal dust explosions, flour mills, feed mills, starch dust, aluminum, celluloid, chocolate, cork, cotton, fertilizer, powdered milk, paper, phonographic records. That's an old one. Rubber, soap, spice, sulfur, and tannery. So that just gives you an idea that the, through the 250 pages of the book, the kind of material they're talking about. And it's really the same type of material that we'd be talking about if you wrote a same textbook today on combustible dust. That's really the point I want to get out of this. So the, the thing that we're trying to show here is that it's not a new problem, this issue with combustible dust. It's actually been known for over 100 years now, even in North America and several hundred years elsewhere in the world. This gives you some of the background on how that came about. And I want to take a pause here before we move on. We're going to talk about the standard development process for combustible dust, which also has been around for almost 100 years um, on the back of the research like this. But I just want to make a note here. So what's missing? We know all the technical solutions for combustible dust. You know, I call these sometimes the dust safety hexagon. So prevent, protect, isolate, contain, collect, clean. Most of your technological solutions will fit under one of those categories. Prevent, protect, isolate, contain, collect, clean. We know that. It's the same chapters that's in this 1920s textbook, same chapters that are new industry guidebooks. What's missing? And, and what I really feel is missing is knowledge transfer. And there's a good quote from Thomas Davenport that successful knowledge transfer involves neither computers nor documents, but rather interactions between people. That's why we have this podcast, to have these discussions, have these communications. That's why we have the Dust Safety Academy, is to have an open forum where global, globally people can ask and answer questions for these type of topics. That's why we have the training at the Dust Safety Academy to help transfer this knowledge through to all the individuals that need it at the end of the day. So we'll go back to the core topic here then. So let's talk about the NFPA standard development. Um, NFPA 652 was not the first standard for combustible dust. Either was you know, 68 or the agricultural standard and the other ones. Um, it's actually been around for almost 100 years as well. And I try to trace this back to its early formation. I talked with uh, Guy Colonna, formerly of the NFPA, on where did this start? 
and he gave me some kind of material to, to fall back on. So I have a one-page summary here from the 28th Committee on Dust Explosion Hazards from the National Fire Protection Association. And from my understanding, this document and, and meeting was held in 1924. So shortly thereafter, this textbook being published by Price and Brown, who are actually the chairman and the secretary, respectively, of this meeting, um, it had 20 experts on industrial safety. And this was the sort of summary notes for the meeting. So under a section called Regulations for Pulverizing Systems for Sugar, uh, it says this report has been submitted to the ballot of the, the committee, which consists of 20 members, whom 18 have voted affirmative and, and two have refrained from voting. On passing regulation for, or passing standards and recommendations for pulverizing systems for sugar. And we'll talk about the actual standard that was passed here in a second, because we have that document as well. But I want to, want, to, want to read through this kind of summary of this meeting, because again, it kind of illustrates the temperature at the time, the thought process at the time in terms of combustible dust safety and illustrates a lot of the same things that we're talking about here today with combustible dust. So the first, I'll, I'll just read through There's an introduction and then a discussion of location destruction of these pulverizing systems. So it reads, introduction, these regulations are issued to eliminate or reduce the hazards inherent in the manufacture of pulverized sugar, particularly the hazard of its ignition and the propagation of resulting fire. It is essential that there be no escape of dust into the atmosphere of the room, a condition as, a condition as favorable to a dust explosion and to the rapid propagation of fire. For this reason, it is important that the apparatus pr be provided with effective appliances to prevent and confine the ignition. Proper venting of the apparatus and ventilation of the pulverizing department are important. The term pulverizing department, as used in these regulations, comprises the portion of the plant in which the pulverizing processes are carried in. The equipment usually consists of mills and or pulverizers, scrapers, bolters and screens, separators or dust collectors, spouts and conveying apparatus. Subsection 1, location. Change paragraph B to read as follows. If the process owing to the layout of the plant cannot be carried out in location as recommended above, the portion of the plant devoted to them shall be segregated and be located, if possible, in the upper stories under the roof. So we're saying here, if you can't have the pulverizing process be safe, then it's recommended that's in a portion of the plant where it's segregated from the rest, if possible, in the upper stories under the roof. The reason for this is if you have an explosion, you don't have entire collapse of the building, because it's up high um, and it can kind of vent through the roof once the roof fails, but you're not going to have that destruction of the entire building. At least that'd be my take on, on why that recommendation was made. The second note here is that when the processes are carried out in locations as designated in this previous section, the walls, partitions, floors, and ceilings of each section of the plant shall be not less than four inches reinforced concrete or equivalent strength and fire resistance. And a portion of the exterior wall equal to not less than 10% of the confined area of the enclosing wall shall be of light non-combustible material, preferably thin glass. So these are some of the first changes to the regulations for combustible dust, and in particular, pulverizing systems for sugar. They're saying that you should segregate the pulverizing part of the plant away from the rest of it, constructed of four-inch reinforced concrete or equivalent strength and fire resistant, and have 10% of the, the surface area of the room be able to vent that explosion when it should occur. And from these recommendations, you're going to have not lose your facility when you have an explosion. Again, this is back in 1924, talking about sugar dust. The first sugar dust explosion that happened was not in 2008 when we had Imperial Sugar Refinery explosion. That just happened to be a high-profile one that brought it back to the forefront 
or the current renaissance of combustible dust safety. There have been groups, in particular, the National Fire Protection Association, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the U.S. Bureau of Mines, and other groups that have been looking at these for over 100 years. And so once I was able to dig up this document, I really want to figure out, well, what are they referring to? What changes, what document are they making changes to? And I was able to find that, I think, it was the regulations of the National Board of Fire Underwriters for the Pulverizing Systems for Sugar and Cocoa and recommended by the National Fire Protection Agency. This is the 1924 edition that I'm, I'm looking at. So these were regulations that were created by the National Board of Fire Underwriters, so insured its companies. As they learned of these challenges, they kept seeing their clients have explosions in feed and food and sugar and cocoa. They started to create these regulations. And then NFPA started recommending these regulations early on. And eventually, a lot of the regulations by groups like the National Fire, the National Board of Fire Underwriters became the early standards that were developed for combustible dust from NFPA. And so I want to close out then just going through this document a little bit because it's really the, the earliest document I can find on standards and engineering guidelines that are set up in sort of a regulatory framework for combustible dust, at least in, in North America. There's some others um, elsewhere. I believe there's probably some in the mining industry as well, but this is the one, first one for general industries such as sugar and cocoa processing. So under the regulations for pulverizing systems for sugar, Again, there's this clause for location that the pulverizer should preferably be carried out in a detached building used for no other purpose. They talk about construction materials. They talk about communication. And here when they say communication, they're talking about how to connect that building to the other building. So what are the requirements for conveying the material and that sort of stuff? They talk about power. They talk about lightning, wiring, preventative measures, and so on. And there's kind of an interesting couple of pieces here on the pulverizing systems for cocoa part. Under section H of this chapter, it says that all dust collectors used in connection with the pulverizing system, if not located outside the building, shall be located within the pulverizing department and shall be properly vented to a safe point outside of the building. So they're talking about you know having the dust collector outside, and if it's not outside, properly vent it directly to the outside, which is something we, we work with today. And they have section 8 on housekeeping, and they say that good housekeeping is one of the most important factors. Apparatus which will not leak and permit the escape of dust or sifting out of the cocoa is essential. Accumulations of escaping cocoa dust must not be tolerated in the building. It is recommended that the interior of the pulverizing department be painted a color which is in contrast with that of the dust. And it kind of brings a big smile to my face when I, when I read that. Again, this is 100 years ago, a century ago, and we're talking about housekeeping, containment, keeping the dust inside the processing vessel, not having any accumulations outside, not tolerating that, painting the interior of the building a different color so you can tell how much dust is built up on it. I'm sure that there's a presentation from Price and Brown where he's got a coin <laughs> or his driver's license. I know he didn't probably have them set up back then underneath that paint, underneath that dust and says, you know, when you can't see your driver's license anymore, that means that you have too much dust. <laughs> These are, again, 100 years ago, we're talking about the same challenge that we're dealing with today for combustible dust. So really the whole point of this episode was to talk about this myth of that it's a new problem for combustible dust, where it's only been a challenge since you know the early 2000s, and talk with both these different aspects that we've seen. So in this episode, we went through, I think, really three pieces of information. We talked about this textbook by David Price and by Dr. Harold Brown, Theory and Nature of Phenomena, Causes, and Method of Prevention for Dust Explosions. 
There's a little bit of confusion on when this book was published. I had it originally as 1915 when I started the episode, but looking through it, they have some references later in that, so I'm thinking it's probably early 1920s. We have this meeting note from the 28th annual NFPA meeting proceedings on 19, and I think that's from 1924, talking about these regulations that we looked at. And we have these regulations themselves, again, created by the National Board of Fire Underwriters for the Pulverizing Systems for Sugar and Cocoa, as recommended by the NFPA, and then as integrated into the early editions of the NFPA standard. I'm not entirely sure when and where this integration occurred, but it gives you an idea that this was being talked about, discussed, trying to be understood prior to that in the early 1920s, um, and even in the, the 1910s as well. And then I'll just close out on a point that I probably harped about you know, throughout this episode. The things that we've talked about here, housekeeping, containment, segregation, venting, safe venting, not venting into a building, pulverizing systems, cleaning up the dust, not tolerating any dust levels build up in certain areas, which could be your hazard area classification kind of piece, uh, preventive methods, isolation. These are all things that are discussed in the early 1900s, over 100 years ago with combustible dust. They're the same sort of challenge that we're going through today. And I'll just close out by reading off this list again from the price textbook of the industries that they knew were involved with combustible dust at the time which again include flour mills, feed mills, grain elevators, starts, all grain handling plants, sugar, candy, chocolate, malt, spice, linseed meal, cottonseed meal, paper, cork, linoleum, woodworking, sulfur factories, and coal mines, uh, which are the same industries that you know we're talking about a lot today. So I was going to talk through some of the early NFPA loss history that was recorded from the 1900s to both the 1950s. Um, in that period, they recorded over 1,000 combustible dust explosions. Yeah, 1,120, almost 400 of those resulting in an injury or fatality, 676 workers fatally injured, 1,770 that uh, were non-fatally injured from dust explosions in that period from the 1900s through 1956. But since we're sort of getting to the half hour mark, I think I'll save that part of this discussion on lost history until the next episode. So as always, all the resources that I mentioned here will include links to where you can find them. Some of these are a little bit harder because some of them are copyrighted textbooks. You may have to make requests through NFPA to get some of this material. But you can always go to the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 151 for this episode. And we'll have the show notes there with a summary of the material. You can also contact me at chris at dustsafetyscience.com. We'll see about getting the, the material. If you're interested in any of these old history documents um, in a format that's uh, consumable to, to learn from moving forward. So with that, I'll say, as always, thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I want to say thank you again for supporting us for the last three years and coming into year four. Um, and I really appreciate everything you're doing in industries handling combustible dust, making them safer every day with the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm.